Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of Innovation and Compliance. One of the great things about innovation is it can take many forms. It can be certainly a technological solution, a new product. It could be a new service solution, but it can also be a new concept, and that concept uh, can build from prior concepts. And that's the basis of today's podcast, where I have with me Jonathan Marks, partner at Markham LLP, and a well-known fraud practitioner. Jonathan has investigated fraud. He has written about fraud. He has uh, worked for and against fraudsters, and he's helped companies uh, undercover fraud in all its ways, shapes, and forms, and organizations. And I wanted to visit with him today about one of the uh, true innovations in fraud that uh, I attribute to him, and that is the Fraud Pentagon. The Fraud Pentagon built upon work that was done uh, 50 or 60 years ago, which created the Fraud Triangle. So I'm going to visit with Jonathan about the Fraud Triangle and then expand and and ask him to explain why the Fraud Pentagon was an innovation and how he and others, uh, practitioners in the fraud field, can use that. So Jonathan, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, welcome. Thanks, Tom, and thanks for having me on today's podcast. So So I'm going to dispel a myth first, and that is that the Fraud Triangle was not actually created 50 or 60 years ago by Donald Cressy. What Cressy did was he identified the three elements of why he believed uh, fraud occurred, and he did that based on analyzing over 200 cases. But one, one of the things he also did was, and one of the reasons why I believe the Fraud Pentagon is a lot more uh, appropriate in today's, in, in today's environment, is that Cressy looked at basically middle market companies. And if you know, over the years, there's been a lot of fraud at a lot of large companies. And so what lead, what led me to really take a good hard look at what Cressy did and um, why fraud occurred allowed me to focus in on some of the bigger frauds that occurred, such as the Enrons, the WorldComps, the Adelphias, and who the key players were within those organizations. And so what I did was I literally profiled them and I came up with a specific set of characteristics and traits and said, okay, you know, Cressy talks about pressure, opportunity, and rationalization. Do those make sense? Uh, yes, pressure made sense. Uh, opportunity made sense in the, in the, in the, to the effect that it was um, basically related to the internal control environment, pressure obviously being a human element. And then I looked at rationalization. And what people don't realize is that rationalization, according to Cressy, is really a post facto explanation as to why they did the fraud. And in, in a lot of experts have actually said, psychologists and sociologists have said that, you know, fraudsters um, that are uh, sociopaths really don't rationalize. So they just act out. So that's sort of a long-winded way of getting where we are to the fraud Pentagon. But what I came up with was, and it took me a long time to kind of figure out what the elements were and, and how to package them, was that I built upon the fraud triangle and said, you know what, the work that Crafty did was great. You know, pressure, opportunity, and rationalization. We're not going to touch those, but we're going to add two additional components, and those were arrogance and competence. You know, and arrogance is really my way of saying that there's hubris or the sense of entitlement or greed on the part of that person 
whereby they just think that internal controls don't apply to them at all. And the competence piece was really, and, and you have to really pay attention to this part, was really the person's ability to override internal controls and to socially control the situation to his or her advantage by selling it to others. And I think that's really important, uh, and, and I'll explain why. The selling it to others part, to me, meant that if we look at white-collar crime, white-collar criminals build a false sense of integrity around themselves. They want you to trust them, because if you trust them, you lower your level of skepticism. And when I looked at folks like Bernie Madoff and Milken and Kozlowski and Boski, one of the things that I learned was is that they, those folks were great salespeople. You know, they, were a, they had the ability to spin things and socially control things like none other. Ironically, those are some of the same characteristics of the most successful leaders out there as well. So I was looking for sort of this common thread between all of them and uh, the elements that Crestigan identifies, and now my two elements, which were competence and arrogance. And the reason that I came up with these two, competence and arrogance, like I said, was because those were the two additional characteristics that I found common amongst some of the largest frauds that have occurred and some of the largest frauds that had gone on for some time and were actually missed. And so if you go back and look at the constructs of the elements of the fraud Pentagon, my fraud Pentagon that I developed, there's still pressure, there's still opportunity, there's rationalization, and now there's confidence and arrogance. Of those four elements, four of them are really human factors. And so that was one of the things that I found out as well is that you know, why fraud occurred? Why were we missing it? Well, practitioners weren't really focused in on the human factors. They were so afraid to what they were calling stereotyping. And I'm saying it's not really stereotyping. It's really profiling these individuals um, that they, they ignored some of these human elements. And a lot of them were really hidden in plain sight. They really weren't too far afield. They were pretty easy to catch, you know, if you were properly um, uh, sensitized to what those elements are or could be. And so that's, that was really the dynamic behind the development of the fraud Pentagon. So, Jonathan, with that uh, new information or that innovation in ways to think through this, uh, how does that help a, uh, uh, a fraud practitioner such as yourself advise a company to design uh, programs, policies, and procedures to prevent or detect fraud? Great question. So what I... The way I use it and the way I tell others to use it is very simple. There's a big disconnect as to when, when I say what are the elements of a fraud, I usually get, you know, 99 times out of 100, I'll get the response, well, it's pressure, opportunity, and rationalization. And that's not true. Again, that's really a misnomer. Those are really why a fraud occurred, is the pressure, the opportunity, and the, then the rationalization. Um, and, and as we discussed before, sometimes there really is no rationalization. But what are the elements of a fraud? The elements of a fraud are the act, the concealment strategy, and the conversion. And so one of the ways that you can really um, uh, benefit from having the fraud pentagon and then looking at the three elements of a fraud, which are the act, the concealment strategy, and the conversion are, is that when you try to understand what controls are in place um, and how those controls are layered within the organization and how well they're designed or, or not designed, one of the things you can also look at is who the gatekeepers are within a company. So in other words, if you apply the four eyes principle, which I talk about all the time, which are, you know, somebody approves, somebody authorizes, somebody checks something, you know, having somebody else do that as well, um, you know, is that person really the gatekeeper in order for that transaction 
to really meet to meet its final destination, which really means it's recorded in the books and records. And, you know, one of the great things and one of the things that really satisfied me as far as my work had gone is that, um, you know, Joe Wells had said one time, books and records don't commit fraud, people do. So obviously that goes back to the human element as well. So using the fraud Pentagon and looking at, you know, the, the concealment, when you look at um, pressure, opportunity, and rationalization, and then you look at confidence and arrogance, and then you look at those gatekeepers, and you almost profile those gatekeepers, well, you don't almost, you profile those gatekeepers and think, you know, if there are high risk or there could be high risk there, I think it better helps you target those areas where the possibility of management override could occur, uh, the, the possibility of collusion occurring, also the possibility of kind of ignoring internal controls and or by not by not remediating or not installing controls such that those decisions basically run right through those individuals and they have unilateral authority to execute on transactions. And so by focusing back in onto the human elements and really looking at these gatekeepers and understanding these human elements, you know, again, going back to pressure opportunity, confidence, uh, rational, pressure opportunity, rationalization, confidence and arrogance, and then looking at how, um, of, you know, the elements of a fraud, which are the act, the concealment strategy and the conversion, you can marry those two if you understand the bridge between the two and help, it, it actually helps you better to assess risk within the organization and the better you assess risk and the, from an inherent perspective and then understand the controls and then understanding that residual risk, that will help you to better fight fraud, in my opinion, within an organization. So, Jonathan, you just talked about identifying risk and managing risk and utilizing the fraud Pentagon to help a company do it. And it occurred to me that the although it's entitled certainly fraud Pentagon, that it might apply to a, a much larger variety of risks. And I specifically think of risks along the line of a appliance failure, such as the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, or even something perhaps as a, uh, a data breach or a data privacy failure. Would it be too far to, to take the five um, prongs of a or five uh, sides of the fraud triangle and apply them to other risks? You know, again, going back to what Joe Wells said, and I'll expand on that, which I have is, you know, books and records don't commit fraud or pay bribes. People do. So I think the better we understand the human element in this, you know, in the fight against fraud, the, you know, the better off we are. Look, white collar criminals profile us. They do. That's a fact. So why shouldn't we profile them? And the way to profile them is to really understand those elements. So if we understand that, you know, if we know that they're competent um, and, you know, or, you know, competent, they have that level of confidence and they have that level of arrogance. Yes, like I said before, those are the same characteristics that make someone successful. But understanding and adding in sort of the pressure component and the opportunity component um, certainly, um, you know, certainly make the fraud Pentagon right to look at other risks within the organization, um, you know, just as you would a fraud risk or a bribery risk, which is part of fraud, or, or any other risk within the organization. So, yeah, um, yes, I do believe that it might help somebody, uh, you know, get to that point where they, where they better understand risk. Jonathan, does the fraud Pentagon, uh, is it of use to 
uh, n- not just senior management, but really a board and their role in oversight on fraud risk? Is this something that can help a board understand their role and executing that role? Yeah, and, 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 and Tom, that's very perceptive of you because one of the things that I keep harping about is, you know, the board's understanding of what the environment is within an organization. You know, there's a lot of talk about culture and how culture plays a role. Um, and if you look at, you know, the confidence, arrogance, you know, pressure, opportunity, and rationalization features, the why, you know, a lot of that is could be buried in with the culture. And there, there could be markers in with the culture that really draw that out. You know, having the board really understand um, the gatekeepers within the organization, what roles they play, and how those gatekeepers manifest either the preparation of financial statements, which is sort of the ultimate thing, um, uh, or, or you know, it is the ultimate thing, you know, could be very, very beneficial for an audit committee or a board to really understand in their oversight role. Because, you know, again, from a monitoring perspective, if, you look, if you're going back to governance, sort of from a, from a big picture perspective, and you're looking at risk management and you're looking at monitoring and you're looking at transparency and you're looking at disclosure. If I pick out one of those things and we'll say monitoring, how are we effectively monitoring? What monitoring functions do we have in place from a governance perspective? You know, that would be something that an audit committee could say to, you know, as chief audit executive, you know, what are we doing? Are we designing our procedures more appropriately for those areas where there is higher risk? And, you know, what are we doing to ensure that those gatekeepers really are telling the ethical line. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. I mean, you know, this has sort of been one of those taboo things for a while because, like I said, a lot of people equate profiling with stereotyping. You know, I don't believe that. I believe that the better we understand the human element, human behavior, um, you know, I'm not an expert in psychology or sociology by no stretch of the imagination, but I think over my 31 years, you know, of, of being in business and understanding people, and, you know, how they act or how they react or how they move or how they shuck and jive, you know, hasn't made me an expert, but I'm certainly, I'm certainly tuned in to, you know, how that all works and how it comes together. I'll be very interested to see what you uh, come up with next based upon your continued research into this field. So I want to do uh, thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks, Tom. I really appreciate the time. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.